So I want to talk about believing versus feeling. When I was a real new Christian, I was struggling one day with despair and depression, and I could not find a way out of it. So I called three of my mentors on the phone, one after another, and the first one listened compassionately and encouraged me with Bible truth, but it didn't break. The second one did the same. Empathy, compassion, probably a little more stern truth, it still didn't break. The third one listened for a while and then got really fed up and started yelling. Does that sound mean? Probably would have been mean if he was yelling at me, but he wasn't yelling at me. He interrupted me and started yelling and he said, Satan, I rebuke you in Jesus' name. You unhand my brother and let him go. You have no right. And as soon as he said, Satan, I rebuke you, I began to weep, finally. And I felt the claws come out, and that thing lifted off my chest, and I could breathe, and I could feel again, and I was light again. Here's the deal. There's an unseen realm, and we're actually in a spiritual battle. And if we don't know God's truth and understand who Jesus is, who I am in Christ, the greatness of our salvation, the truth about my life, the story of my life, if I don't understand and know how to fight the good fight of faith, I'm probably easy pickings to be fooled by feelings and by senses that come to me as suggestions. The enemy doesn't just come and say, I'm going to show up and be obvious. No, he sneaks in and tries to plant I messages. I don't feel clean. I don't feel loved. I don't feel like my prayers are getting through. I don't feel like I'm really new. I feel like my life's going nowhere. If we take the bait, we actually partner with demonic lies that are outside trying to get in. They're not inside. That's not who we are. They're lying to us about who we are, and they're stealing the truth of the gospel and replacing it with a story about our life that gives us an identity and a narrative that is not God's truth. Every one of us goes through the process over and over of having what God has said tested to see if we're going to live by what we think, see, feel, and judge, or what he has said is the truth. Many days, many days in my early Christian walk, I would feel unclean, unloved, that my prayers weren't getting through, that I really wasn't made brand new again. And the way that I had to pray just to make it through is to confess, God, I thank you that you want fellowship with me more than I want it with you, that this was all your idea, not my idea. You're the one who qualified me and cleansed me by putting me in Jesus. You're the one who sent your son to die to get sin off me, to make me your son again. You love me. That's the proof of it. My prayers are getting through, not because they're powerful prayers and I feel it, but because you hear every thought of every person. My prayers are powerful because God's powerful. He makes my little weak self able to be heard and loved and precious and treasured. And that's what makes my prayers powerful, you. And I would have to declare and thank God for what the gospel was saying is true every single day, because if I went by what I felt in those early days, I was going to quit. So, The truth is, it is working. I am loved. I am clean. My prayers are getting through. I am growing. I am changing into the likeness of Jesus. It's God's work in me. Philippians 1 6. He who began a good work in me will be faithful to bring it to completion. 
This is his idea. This is his power. This is his grace. The fact that I even care whether it's working is evidence that I have been changed from the inside out. So I was learning to press through what I feel into what God says and learn to live there. And sometimes we actually make the most progress specifically and exactly during a season when we feel we're not making any. Sometimes our grit and resolve and our determination to seek God no matter what the outcome is, is the soul ridding itself of wrong motives that need to die. We've got to get unstuck from sensual living. And by sensual living, I do not mean eating chocolate, wearing silk, and laying in sexy poses. (laughs) When I say sensual living, I mean living by our senses, oriented around our perceptions, what I think, what I feel, what I judge, instead of what God says. What I believe the story of my life is, is what's narrating to me who I am. So the story of my life and the truth of who I am must, now that I'm in Christ, be allowed to be edited by the Holy Spirit so that what I'm saying on earth about my life agrees with what God is saying about my life in heaven. Again, 2 Corinthians 5, 7, we live by faith and not by sight. Another way of saying this is we live by truth and not by our feelings. So in Genesis 3, when Eve heard the serpent's voice, distrusted the father's voice, and then looked with her eyes at the fruit, sight took the place of faith. There's a lot of people who really do believe that people are only doing as well as life is treating them or as people are treating them. But the Christian does not believe that. The Christian believes things are going as well as the resurrection of Jesus. The real believer sees every trial as an opportunity for what I believe to be put into practice. Who is God in this situation? Who is God for me now? What is my motive in the midst of this trial? Is it me? Or is it Jesus? If my motive is still me, then that self-centered motive will empower tons, tons of buttons all over me for self-pity and panic and bitterness and resentment and despair and buckling under temptation. But if I've denied myself and taken up my cross, it just removes the options and it makes things crystal clear in my perspective. In the trial, my story, the story I'm telling on earth about what my life is and therefore who I am, is being tested. Is it about me and what I'm going through, or is it about him and what he went through on my behalf? And then this is now my privilege to stand in faith and manifest Jesus come hell or high water. Do I pray in desperation and disorientation from a me-centered, me-focused perspective, or am I praying in faith, from faith, because I trust you? Jesus is very clear. The prayer of faith moves mountains. He says, when the disciples say, hey, increase our faith, he goes, I tell you the truth, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could command this tree, go throw yourself in a lake, and it would step up and tear itself out the ground, and it would jump in that lake and say, yes, sir. James 1 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you, James 1, 6. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. Verse 7, that person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Verse 8, such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. 
I've actually learned that prayer doesn't change things. The prayer of faith changes things. The prayers of anxiety that root us more deeply in the problem can actually be a cause of more panic, more trouble, more depression, more anxiety. What we believe is so important. So a person who's only doing as well as they're feeling is like a person covered in self-destruct buttons and all that has to happen for that person to have a complete meltdown is for any kind of temptation or trouble to come, any negative message, any hurtful situation, and it will push one of our many available buttons and we'll go, and meltdown. Can you imagine if that was a soldier? Like a soldier who is so living by their feelings, so up in their feelings, that any time an enemy just shows up with a gun pointed at them in their general direction, they freak out, hug a rock, and go see a counselor. And they say, it's just not working for me. Must be my dad, must be my childhood, must be my church, must be my friends, must be whatever it is, must be blah, blah, blah. No! Things worth guarding that the enemy's going to guard are the critical positions. I don't know if we got the memo yet, but life, love, art, anything worth doing, there's an element of warfare in it. We have to fight the the internal resistance and the external resistance that stands in between us and anything of value in life. Resistance means we're on the right track. Yes, I'm going to counsel you, but if you think that when you leave my office, because God met you in my office and you experienced peace and you're like, oh my word, and like a hundred pounds came off your shoulders... The truth of God that was ministered to you in that experience is now meant to be a weapon that when that same resistance rises up and tries to get back on you, next time you are no longer fooled and you know how to stand in the truth of the God you encountered in my office in that time of peace. Last thing I need is for you to think that because now you've had a breakthrough and your feelings finally lined up, because guess what? You believed and then your feelings followed that. That now when the resistance comes, the last thing I need is you running back to my office thinking that the resistance means something's wrong. The evil one always tries to come and steal the seed before it has time to root. Okay, David and God in secret. David, off by himself with the sheep, had no dreams that I could perceive in there of grandeur, of being any kind of significant public leader. He's just doing his God thing because he's a, he's a man And as a man, he was made to be God's kid, so he's doing it. He's living the reason for his existence out there with no one watching, singing to God on his harp, being the beloved. And here comes a lion to take his sheep. And he kills that sucker. A lion. I don't know if that's going to register with a lot of us. A lion. Bears are terrifying. And he takes down this bear with the help of God. In secret, nobody's watching. He gets his victory over the lion and the bear through God. Later on in life, because of the way he knew God, when he stands in front of Goliath, the invisible God at his right hand seemed so much more relevant, so much more looming large in his understanding than the visible threat of the Goliath right in front of him. And he runs to the battle line. When the Goliath shows up and starts to taunt, starts to lie, starts to threaten, a lot of us immediately call the prayer chain because we don't know who God is, we don't know who we are in God, and we don't know what Christ accomplished. I'm not saying don't call the prayer chain, but I'm saying if you call the prayer chain because you have no faith of your own and you're just hoping somebody out there might have faith, there's a problem right there. David had taken a long time to let God love him and to love God back with no other motive than knowing God. 
They had built something over a long period of time in secret when no one was watching, so that in public later when everyone was watching, what they'd built was more real, more, more determinant than that guy, Goliath. My friend Adam, one day he was in his office and this dark cloud of depression tried to come back on him, you know, like it used to back before Jesus. And he perceived it and he was like, wait a minute, this is a demonic thing trying to come on me, trying to get me discouraged. And he thought, should I cast it out? It's like, I see you and I'm not making any agreement with you, but should I send it away or should I just make it suffer? So he decided, I'm just going to make this thing suffer by watching me do my thing. I'm going to just do my Jesus thing. I'm going to seek his face. I'm going to love the person in front of me, preach good sermons, pray for the sick. So he goes to church, preaches his message, goes back to Sunday night, praying for the sick. And this lady comes up to him. Oh my word, Adam, there's this dark cloud. There's this demonic presence over your shoulder. He goes, yeah, I know. Of course there is. Yeah, duh. I know that. Aren't you going to cast it out? Nah, just going to make it suffer. So he did. A couple of days later, he got bored, left. He never needed it to go. Now, let me tell you why I love that story. I love that story because I'm so used to hearing us only be doing as well as whether or not we're in a fight. If we're not in a fight, we're doing well. But if we're in the middle of a fight, we're just not doing well. That is a level of not free that makes me very much concerned about us. That is a level of being determined by what's external to us. We've got to grow up into this thing. All right, let me tell you another story. Acts chapter 19, verse 11. God was doing unusual miracles through Paul. Even the small towels and aprons that touched his skin were taken to the sick and their diseases were cured and the evil spirits left them. I mean, that's, wow. That is an unusual miracle. Even the towels and aprons that touched him were healing people and demons were coming out because the apron that touched Paul, when it touched the body of the person, the residual presence of God was so painful to the demon they fled? Come on. Verse 13 of Acts 19, there were some Jews who traveled around throwing out evil spirits and they tried to use the power of the name of the Lord Jesus against some people who had evil spirits. They said, in the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you. The seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. The evil spirit replied, I know Jesus, and I'm familiar with Paul, but who are you? This person with an evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all with such force that they ran out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, and everyone was seized with fear, and they held the name of the Lord Jesus in the highest regard. Wow. Two questions. Number one, why didn't the seven sons of Sceva have authority? And number two, why did Paul? Well, notice this. The demon asks, who are you? Who the heck are you? I love that question. They would probably stand there and say, I'm this person and I'm that person and point to their spiritual pedigrees. But actually, they've heard of Jesus, but they don't intimately know Jesus. Not really. Paul, on the other hand, had substance. He had the reality, not the right answers on the test. He knew God instead of knowing about God. See, Paul had been hearing and obeying God's whispers 
in secret from a sincere motivation to love God. And that's just it. Humility before God and authority from God are inseparable. 1 Corinthians 4.20, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. See, these seven professional exorcists, they didn't know Jesus. It was technique. It was the right words. It was the right method, the right formula, recipes. People love recipes and formulas because they don't require much of us. Just do this, this, and this, and it's going to work. Let me try this. Maybe this will work. Prayed it didn't work. Maybe if we pray this way, it'll work. We yelled at the devil. Didn't work. Maybe if we go over here and pour oil on it, it'll work. Maybe if we go to the right church. Maybe if the right person lays hands on me. (sighs) Maybe it's actually not that complicated. Maybe we're making it crazy complicated. Maybe it's actually right relationship, love relationship, and the right motive. Maybe it's actually Jesus in us that does it all. And maybe if we let him love on us, and we take him in real deep and just walk with him real close, there will be a glory resting on us, whether or not we even feel powerful. Exodus 34:29. when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. He was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant and they were afraid to come near him. You know who else would have been afraid to come near him? You guessed it. Anything demonic. Moses didn't know his face was glowing, but the people were freaking out. Again, what is true and what we feel might not always align. Just because I don't feel anointed doesn't mean I'm not anointed. Luke twenty-two thirty-one. Jesus tells Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift each of you like wheat, but I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith will not fail. What does that mean? You're going to go through a real hard time, and I'm praying for you, not that you don't go through a hard time, but that what holds you fast and survives and gets stronger and more clarified and more purified in the midst of it is your faith. And when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers, because it's the plural. Satan has asked to sift each of you like wheat. It's a, it's a plural. It's not just Simon. Satan has said, God, give me permission to go at him. I think they're all chaff. And Jesus is advocating on our behalf, faith. Rise up in faith, Simon, and then restore your brothers to their faith. Because God actually believes in us. That's a strange one, isn't it? God believes in us. He believes we're capable of doing hard things. He believes we're capable of living unselfishly for love. He believes we were made for his image in the beginning, which is love, and that in Jesus, he himself is working in us. And we can do hard things. And Jesus really believes that the sifting, that it will rid us of the chaff and put the wheat, the real you in Christ, on display and shame the devil. Satan, on the other hand, believes something different about us. He thinks we're all chaff, no wheat, all song, no sacrifice, all bark, no bite, all talk, no walk. Where am I getting this? Well, not just Luke, it's Job. Job chapter 1, the angels are coming before the Lord and the devil comes before the Lord. They're roaming throughout the earth and God says, have you considered Job? He's faithful. Look at him. And Satan says, does Job revere God for nothing? Haven't you fenced him in? This is Job chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Haven't you put a fence around him, protecting his house and all he has? Haven't you blessed the work of his hands so that his possessions extend throughout the earth? In other words, what's he saying? 
Job doesn't love you, God. He loves himself. He only loves you for what you give him. He only loves him. Just let me make him suffer a little bit and you're going to see. Just watch. He's going to accuse you of wrong. He's going to claim it's not fair. He's going to throw a big pity party. He's going to lay down and die because he doesn't love you. He's selfish like everyone else. I, I just don't know if we get it. But we can. Right now, we can rise up and get it. We can begin to thank God for the truth that I am the beloved and he is mine. That the real story of my life is I'm the one he loves. I'm the one who loves much. Every pain has been redeemed. You will guide me with your counsel and afterward take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you and earth has nothing I desire besides you. So Bernard, he said there's four stages of love. Stage one, love of self for the sake of self. This is the natural state since Adam and Eve, our first parents, sinned. And then there's a little religion, right? Love of God for the sake of self. God, get me out of this jam. God, get me out of addiction. God, get, save my marriage. God, help me stop doing this thing that really is robbing my life of joy. If you'll do this for me, God, then I'll serve you. It's, it's not loving God. It's still loving self. It's like, well, God might have what I need. I can work a deal with God. No faith present. It's just selfishness. Stage three, though, something changes. Love of God for the sake of God. Love of God for the sake of God. Hmm. Uh, that's something truly supernatural happening right there. That's actually a conversion. That's not possible unless I'm born again. That's not possible unless Holy Spirit comes and transforms my heart. Love of God for the sake of God. And then the surprising fourth step, which we never saw coming, is actually love of self for the sake of God. Now I'm even merciful to myself because I trust that God's mercy is right. Now I'm actually believing what he says about me instead of what I thought about me. Now I'm actually living by the truth that I'm not allowed to look in any mirror and judge myself. I'm only allowed to look into his eyes and see his face and what I see on his face and my reflection in his eyes, see myself through his eyes, is the only legal lens through which I'm to understand who I am, that my life's hid with Christ in God. And hid means two things. It means, first of all, I'm protected. My life is protected, kept safe in Jesus. But it also means that I can't find myself anywhere else. That the old me is not me. That the me in Christ is the real me. The new me is the real me and the old me is not. If I can't see me through the lens of the faith, then what I think I see is not what he sees. We are here to be loved by God and to become that love. We walk by faith, not by sight.